0: We're so glad you're here to listen to this week's sermon from Park Street Church. Park Street is a historic congregation located in the heart of Boston. But more than that, we're a community of people from all different backgrounds who believe and are united by the good news that Jesus is Lord. Visit us at parkstreet.org to learn about our community. I would like to draw your attention this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verses 1 through 5, as we take up our final time in this text that we've been studying together over the past several weeks. And as we do so, Paul returns to his underlying theme in this entire passage, which is the subject of his preaching. Paul's preaching was a source of tension in Corinth. Uh, there were some who were unimpressed with what, how Paul spoke, and there were opponents who came into Corinth after Paul departed uh, who were criticizing Paul's speech. Consider 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10. Paul says, for they say, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak, and his speech of no account. This is something paul actually seems to affirm in chapter 11 of second corinthians verse 6 he admits even if i am unskilled in preaching he says Uh, so he's kind of acknowledging that perhaps this is the case and as we've seen from this entire section in verses uh from verse 17 of chapter 1 through verse 5 of chapter 2 paul has been defending his approach to proclamation as consistent with the surprising culture subverting way that god actually is at work in the world represented paradigmatically in the cross of jesus christ the crucified messiah and paul then drives home this point in our text for today where the main thrust is that paul intentionally rejected the greco-roman way of rhetoric and we'll explore as we explore this in this text we've looked at this before we're going to go a bit deeper today um, and i'll be drawing from duane Litfin's excellent book paul's theology of preaching the Apostle's Challenge to the Art of Persuasion in Ancient Corinth. This was a book that he published in 2015, but Dwayne Litfin, who was formerly president of Wheaton College, first published on this subject in 1977 in Christianity Today. And then in the early 80s, he did a DPhil in Oxford on this topic. He published that in the early 90s. And so the book that he published in 2015 is a reflection and kind of presentation of all that he's learned on this over his life's work. As we look and dive into this text, we'll see a contrast between the persuader, which is the rhetorician, the orator in Greco-Roman rhetoric, and the herald, which is Paul's own understanding of the way that he thinks about his role as a proclaimer of the gospel. And then we'll see why this matters to Paul, and then finally we'll try to draw some implications for our lives and ministries today. So first, the persuader versus the herald. Paul is clearly portraying that what he is doing is entirely different than what is done in the rhetorical tradition of ancient Corinth. And this is most apparent in chapter 2, verse 1. Look with me at the text. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. We saw previously, many weeks ago, in verse 17 of chapter 1, that Paul rejected words of eloquent wisdom as the means by which he might proclaim the gospel and then he repeats the same basic rejection here in verse one of chapter two and then again in verse four look with me at verse four my, my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom Paul is saying I am not an orator not a rhetorician and to grasp the significance of this argument we need to more deeply understand The rhetorical tradition in Greece. As Litvin writes, quote, it will be crucial when we arrive at the Corinth of Paul's day to have seen the sheer overwhelming power of the rhetorical tradition in Greece. The practice of eloquence was not something that merely existed during Paul's day, it was persuasive in Greece and had been, it was pervasive in Greece and had been for centuries. It was a prime ingredient in the cultural heritage that defined Hellenism, and gave the Greek mind its shape. The reach of rhetoric was all but inescapable during the life of Paul, from city to town to village. The Greco-Roman people thrived on eloquence and lionized its practitioners as moderns do their movie stars. End quote. So, what was the aim of the orator in the Greek rhetorical tradition? Litfin writes. When we lay bare the essence of the thing, rhetoric was about the discovery, shaping, and delivery of ideas so as to engender belief in one's listeners. At its core lay the kaleidoscopic ability of the persuader to mold all his efforts, including form and content, to the demands of the given situation with a view to winning a particular result from his listeners. Given this audience, this subject matter, on this occasion, how can I achieve the desired result? This was the question persuaders were trained to ask and answer, and the measure of their skills was the degree to which they could do so successfully in whatever rhetorical situation they might be facing. So notice that what underlies uh, what the rhetorician is seeking to produce in his listeners is conviction or faith. It is actually the same underlying word for the New Testament word for faith, pistis in the Greek, and that's what the rhetorician who seeks to persuade his audience is trying to produce in his hearers. The rhetorician who could do this was viewed in the ancient world as heroic, really, because these results depended upon their gifts and skills. Litvin again, Leaning solely on his own brilliance, he had to become the supple variable by which the equation was made to work. His task was so to discover and manipulate the mix of rhetorical possibilities inherent in the audience, subject, and occasion that his purpose would be accomplished. End quote. So if the persuader could do this, the rhetorician could do this, he received great praise. Here's how Cicero, the great Roman orator from the first century B.C. described a rhetorician. There is to my mind no more excellent thing than the power by means of oratory to get a hold on assemblies of men, win their goodwill, direct their inclinations wherever the speaker wishes or divert them from whatever he wishes. What is so what is so pleasing to the understanding and the ear as a speech adorned and polished with wise reflections and dignified language? Or what achievement so mighty and glorious, as that the impulses of the crowd, the consciences of the judges, the austerity of the Senate, should suffer transformation through the eloquence of one man." End quote. So the rhetorician who could do this kind of thing with an audience on a particular occasion, carried himself then with a certain kind of swagger, as you might imagine, in the culture. Maybe, like we would imagine, a movie star might walk into a restaurant today. It was said of the popular first century rhetorician Scopelian that he appeared before his audiences, quote, not with the bearing of a timid speaker, but as befitted one who was entering the lists to win glory for himself and was confident that he could not fail, end quote. In fact, around Paul's day, it was agreed that the most important quality for an order was assurance. That is the kind of confidence in one's ability to produce the desired outcomes, the right kind of persuasion. So I go through all of that to say that when Paul says in verse 1 that he speaks not with lofty speech or wisdom, or in verse 4, not in plausible words of wisdom, When he says that he comes to them in verse three, look with me at verse three, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. He is explicitly rejecting this tradition of Greco Roman rhetoric and the strategies for persuasion that go along with it. Paul is saying emphatically that this is not what he is doing. In his proclamation of the gospel no he is not taking up the rhetorician's task of persuading and using all of his brilliance and powers and skill to produce his desired outcomes rather paul's mode or model for thinking about his ministry is one of a herald or a witness This can be actually seen in the words that Paul uses throughout this section to describe his role to preach, to proclaim, to declare the good news, to bear witness, to announce. Here in verse one, look back at verse one. He says, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God. To proclaim was to make something known in public with the goal of broad dissemination of that message. And then he declares that what that is is the testimony of God the witness of God given to Paul to declare to the world in verse 4 he uses this word that's translated my message here that word for message kereso means proclamation a public declaration a herald sent by God with a message Paul is not a convincer he's not a persuader Rather, he is a herald, and as a herald, unlike its counterpart, he resolves not to know many things and to manipulate the hearers to achieve his desired results based on which of those many things that he knows he wants to deploy for the occasion. Rather, he knows one thing. Did you catch that in verse 2? This message that he has been given by God. He says, "I," and he's using hyperbole here. Obviously, he knows more than this. But he says to them, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. His aim as a herald is to simply declare or proclaim that one thing that he has been given to declare faithfully and clearly without distorting it or changing it in any way. There was a position of a herald in the ancient world and this person was not seen in any way like the ancient rhetorician. The rhetorician was somebody who could use his own gifts and mastery of, of the skills of rhetoric and knowledge about his subject to deploy them in such a way that would meet certain desired outcomes that that rhetorician had set beforehand. He was more like the artist. The herald? Just a servant. Just a message bearer. Not a place of honor, but one who came in the authority of someone else, not to use his own mind to creatively deploy that which, we, which he had been given, but rather to faithfully transmit without any dilution or adulteration the message with which he had been entrusted by the authority. The herald was more like a servant. And Paul says, that's my dominant mode for thinking about my role here as a proclaimer of the gospel. The herald was merely a messenger, the rhetorician was the world changer. The herald in the words of one scholar is quote simply an executive instrument being only the mouth of his master he must not falsify the message entrusted to him by additions of his own he must deliver it exactly as given to him he must keep strictly to the words and orders of his master Paul saw his role solely as the proclamation of something that the wisdom of the world viewed as foolish and nonsensical Christ and him crucified. John Calvin, in writing on this text, puts these words into Paul's mouth. So this is Paul speaking through the, ton, the, the pen of John Calvin. The reason why I lacked embellishments of speech and did not argue with more refinement and subtlety was because I did not strive after those things. In fact, I rather disdained them because only one thing mattered to me, to proclaim Christ with simplicity. We might say, well, Why? Well Paul understood that was his role as the herald but Paul also knew that God's power was at work in this proclamation. He had borne witness to this time and time again. Remember his words to the church in Thessalonica in first Thessalonians chapter 1 verses 4 and 5. For we know brothers loved by God that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. That's why Paul can say, as he rejects the tools and techniques of Greco-Roman rhetoric in verse 4, that he can also affirm that his speech and his message, look with me back at that text, are in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Lives were being changed. People were being forgiven of their sins. Their lives were being turned on their heads things were changing as Paul was going from town to town proclaiming this message they were being filled by the power of the Holy Spirit and they were then beginning to form new communities marked by love that disregarded socio-cultural norms and transgressed cultural boundaries and Paul was bearing witness to all of this the herald versus the persuader Paul Uh, sides directly with the herald why was this so important well it was so important to Paul that he remained a simple herald that he not engage in lofty or eloquent speech for this reason and verse 5 he says so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men but in the power of God remember the goal of the persuader the orator in the Greco-Roman world was to produce faith pistis in his hearers and the outcome the ability to produce that faith was dependent upon his use of all of his powers to sway the audience in the direction that he so desired Paul actually says he will not engage in this practice because he wants the faith of his hearers not to be the result of some natural process the result of the use of psychological insights and techniques and rhetorical skills that led his hearers to an in- inevitable response no this would be to risk counterfeit results to risk producing a faith that rests not on god's power but on the wisdom of men in terms of their rhetorical gifts and power here's Dwayne litfin again Quote, Paul plainly wanted his listeners to embrace Christ in faith, but he eschewed the use of persuasive technique designed to move them to do so. To use such techniques, Paul held, would have raised the specter of the listener's faith resting on the preacher's facility as a, as a rhetor, and therefore of the preacher thereby usurping the Spirit's role in creating faith. In other words, it would have replaced the divine dynamic of the cross with the human merely psychological dynamic of rhetoric thereby preempting the saving power of the cross. While such an approach might achieve a certain type of results, they were not the results Paul craved. End quote. Paul knew that the realm of persuasion, of bringing someone to faith, was not his realm or domain. This was the domain of the Spirit of God, and Paul was confident in God's power and ability to produce faith, He had watched him do it again, time and time again. So he refused to trespass upon that territory, which belonged solely to the power of the Holy Spirit. And in this way, the faith of those who responded to Paul's heralding of the gospel message would not rest on the shifting sand foundation of Paul's or any other person's rhetorical gifts, but it would rest on the solid, unchanging foundation of the power of Almighty God that's what paul saw was at stake in his unwillingness to use the persuasive techniques of his day now thinking about perhaps the best way to illustrate this i thought about probably what is the best known conversion story in all of christendom that is the conversion of charles haddon spurgeon and it bears repeating though even if many of you know it already especially as we Dive into this study on 1 Corinthians 2 verses 1 through 5 It was Sunday, January 6th 1850 Spurgeon a 15 year old Spurgeon set out to attend the local congregational church in his hometown of Colchester, England He set out that morning with a heart heavily burdened with the weight of God's law I'll say probably not like most 15 year old boys that I know but Spurgeon was no ordinary person, for those of you who know his work. And he was longing that morning to hear a message of relief from that great burden. Longing for somebody to relieve him. He had not—he been deeply reading, Spurgeon, deeply reading for years at this point. But not yet come to know the grace and relief of the love of God in Christ. There was such a snowstorm that morning that on the walk he detoured down a side lane called artillery street and stumbled upon the primitive methodist church a church he had never visited but he had heard his mother speak of it fondly and so he diverted his plans because of the weather being so bad and he popped his head into the church and entered into the sanctuary there were no more than 12 to 15 people in the church and even the minister had not been able to make To make it to the building that morning because of the storm so as one recounter of this story remarks it was the wrong church the wrong congregation the wrong weather and the wrong preacher a tall skinny man enters into the pulpit Spurgeon perceives him to be either a shoemaker or a tailor Spurgeon never will actually never uh, know anything more about the man he never meets him again and this man announces his text For the morning message isaiah 45 verse 22 in the king james look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth for i am god and there is none else spurgeon reflects that the man actually had little to say so he just kept repeating his text and he said something though he did say something like this my dear friends this is a very simple text indeed it says look now look and don't take a deal of pain. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It is just look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A child can look. One who is almost an idiot can look. However weak or however poor a man may be, he can look. And if he looks, the promise is that he shall live. Many on ye are looking to yourselves, but it's no use looking there. You'll never find any comfort in yourselves. Some say, look to God, the Father. No, look to him by and by. It is Christ that speaks. I am in the garden in an agony, pouring out my soul unto death. I am on the tree, dying for sinners. Look unto me. I rise again. Look unto me. I ascend into heaven. Look unto me. I am sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner, look unto me. Look unto me. Some of you say, we must wait for the Spirit's working. You have no business with that just now. Look to Christ. The text says, look to me. Spurgeon recounts that he was able to make that last for about 10 minutes. And to looked right at Spurgeon, having run out of things to say. This young man that he had never seen before and has said to Spurgeon, Young man, you look very miserable, and you always will be miserable. Miserable in life and miserable in death. If you don't obey my text, but if you obey it now, this moment, you will be saved. Young man, look to, G- look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look you have nothing to do but to look and live and Spurgeon says I did look and that was when he knew the grace of God in Christ had flooded his soul had liberated him from his own sin and from the burden of the law of God which he could never fulfill and changed his life forever Spurgeon later reflected, I thank God that I owe my conversion to Christ to an unknown person who was certainly no minister in the ordinary meaning of the term, but who could say this much, look unto Christ and be saved, all ye ends of the earth. This unknown man that God used to convert the greatest preacher of the 19th century, this man was faithful. He fulfilled his duty as a herald, a proclaimer, I want to finish by drawing a few implications from this text the chief insight as we draw to a close from Paul's approach to his preaching ministry as he articulates it here not as the persuader of Greco-Roman rhetoric but as the herald of the gospel is this Paul's primary metric in evaluating his work is not results it's obedience the orator was determined to be a success based upon the results of his deployment of his skills in any particular moment with any particular audience if many responded with conviction then he was a success if few did then he was a failure and paul rejects this metric by virtue of articulating that he as a carrier uh, as a proclaimer of the gospel that his metric is actually not results but it is obedience What Paul knows makes him a success or a failure is not whether many people respond or few, but is rather whether he has been faithful to declare that which God had entrusted to him as a herald to declare. Has he been faithful to do that which God alone had asked him to do and to do so without without uh, changing or adulterating the message that he had been given? Is he faithful to the message that God had called him to proclaim? Are we faithful to the work that God has called us to do. Paul will go on to write in chapter 4 of 1st Corinthians. Moreover, he, he says he's a steward. That's the, the word he used there instead of herald. But he says, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, Paul says, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. I wonder as we think about our lives and the ministries that God has given to each one of us as witnesses to his gospel, in word and deed, even in our collective work as, uh, as a church community at Park Street Church, do we consider them through the lens of obedience or through the lens of results? God has called us to be faithful, to be obedient, and to leave the fruitfulness to him. Second, Do we attempt to move forward in ministry using techniques that are far too natural, far too experience driven, and results oriented? Paul rejects Greco Roman rhetoric not because it does not work, actually, it works far too well. He rejects it because it's far too natural, it's just too human. So i wonder when we think about approaching our lives and our ministries both on our own and in life and ministry together are we attracted to mechanisms and techniques that assure us of certain results because we know that our critics those who evaluate us they long to see results any of you and i know many of you out here are in this situation any of you who have ever served in a ministry capacity where you're writing regular reports to a a donor base to support you, understands this temptation, don't you, to results? Results, results, results. And techniques are constantly being developed and used and deployed in the church to assure those results. But this is a temptation that Paul's self-understanding of his ministry as a herald of the gospel uncovers for us here and it's a temptation that we need to acknowledge in the context of the church it's not that we can't use techniques but we must be careful not to put our trust in them you remember how it's spoken of in zechariah chapter 4 verse 6 not by might not by power But by my spirit says the lord of hosts god is never delighted in these things that seem to have the appearance of strength and power from a worldly perspective psalm 147 which i quoted a few weeks ago his delight is not in the strength of the horse nor his pleasure in the legs of a man but the lord takes pleasure in those who fear him in those who hope in his steadfast love And the third and final point as we close not just a final point to this message but i I hope a final point to the series that we've been in over the last five weeks and reflecting on the cross of christ in this text out of first corinthians is about weakness let's not shun weakness think with me back through this text for a moment verse one the weakness of his method, not with lofty speech or wisdom. Verse 2, the weakness of his message. I resolved to know nothing while I was among you, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. To a world that is on fire, to a world of violence, to situations of challenge and heartache in our own lives, and even in our own community over the past few months, there is only one message there's only one word that we've been given to offer to each other and to the world it's the message of Jesus Christ And him crucified, and I think far too often, two thousand years after the fact, when we're so we're so accustomed to this message and to the cross that we've lost the sense in which this was genuine weakness. For Paul to walk into a city like Athens, among the intellectual elite of the ancient world, and to proclaim and declare a Messiah who'd been crucified on a Roman cross, this was this was outlandish. This was folly. This was a stumbling block. And Paul says, no, the weakness is in the message, too. Christ and him crucified, that's the message that we have to bear. And then there's the weakness of the messenger, verse 3. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. We don't like weakness. We like strength. We like to have it all together. We want to impress the world. But here it is in verses 1, 2, and 3, and it's really running throughout this entire section by the feature and focus of God's climactic, salvific work being in the cross of his son, Jesus, that Paul is saying that God's power, as he'll say in 2 Corinthians 12, as God will say to him, as Jesus will say to him, my power is made perfect in weakness. Yeah, it's a stumbling block to jews and it's foolishness to gentiles but to those who are called both jews and greeks christ the power of god and the wisdom of god this is something that i hope we can learn more and more this is something over the past several months that i have been learning personally more and more and i hope we don't shun it i hope we don't just try to fix it real quick I hope that we can live into the reality of our identity as followers of the crucified king, of an upside-down kingdom. Where to be first is to be last. Where to be on top is to be at the lowest point. And where to be strong is to be weak. There's so much there for us as a community to grow into. Paul says in that passage in 2 Corinthians 12, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Let's glory in our weakness, because the glory is all his. The power is all his. The love is all his, and so we boast in him alone. Let's pray. God, we desperately need you to teach us uh, through the gentleness of your spirit, in the circumstances of our lives, this subversive message of the cross a message of power and weakness Lord forgive us for being so slow to embrace the weakness and brokenness of the cross in our lives and we pray that you'd help us to embrace this more and apply it in very particular ways in this week we pray that we would forego any desire to be to appear to be strong to one another and to our world and that we would simply glory in the unadorned, simple, profound reality of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That we might be changed, that our city might be changed, and that the world might be changed. Not by our skills and rhetoric, but by your power. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.